Section 17 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 7 by Charles F. Horne, Rossiter Johnson and John Rudd. Conspiracy and Death of Marino Falieri at Venice, A.D. 1355, by Mrs. Margaret Oliphant. Marino Falieri was born at Venice about 1278 and was elected Doge in 1354. For many years the government of the Republic under an oligarchy had been arbitrarily dominated by the Council of Ten, an assembly that, after serving a special purpose for which it was created, was declared permanent in 1325 and became a formidable tribunal. Professing to guard the Republic, the Ten in fact destroyed its liberties, disposed of its finances, overruled the constitutional legislators, suppressed and excluded the popular element from all voice in public affairs, and finally reduced the nominal prince, the doge, to a mere puppet or an ornamental functionary, still called head of the state. At the time when Falieri entered upon his doge-ship, the city in all quarters was pervaded by the spies of this great oligarchy, which seized and imprisoned citizens and even put them to death secretly, without itself being answerable to any authority. The most notable event in the annals of this extraordinary Venetian government is that which forms the story of Marino Falieri himself. His conspiracy with the plebeians to assassinate the oligarchs and make himself actual ruler of the state had the double motive of a personal grievance and the sense of a political wrong. The fate of this old man has been made the subject of tragedies by Byron in 1820, Casimir de Lavina in 1829 and Swinburne in 1885. The novel Doge und Dojeresse by Ernst Theodor Hoffmann was inspired by the same dramatic figure. Of historical accounts, the following, in Mrs Oliphant's best manner, is justly regarded as the most impressive which has hitherto appeared in English. Marino Falieri had been an active servant of Venice through a long life. He had filled almost all the great offices which were entrusted to her nobles. He had governed her distant colonies, accompanied her armies in that position of provveditore, omnipotent civilian critic of all the movements of war, which so much disgusted the generals of the Republic. He had been ambassador at the courts of both emperor and pope and was serving his country in that capacity at Avignon when the news of his election reached him. It is thus evident that Falieri was not a man used to the position of a lay figure, although at 76 the dignified retirement of the throne, even when so encircled with restrictions, would seem not inappropriate. That he was of a haughty and hasty temper seems apparent. It is told of him that after waiting long for a bishop to head a procession at Treviso, where he was Podesta, 
chief magistrate, he astonished the tardy prelate by a box on the ear when he finally appeared, a punishment for keeping the authorities waiting. Old age to a statesman, however, is in many cases an advantage rather than a defect, and Falieri was young in vigour and character and still full of life and strength. He was married a second time to presumably a beautiful wife, much younger than himself, though the chroniclers are not agreed even on the subject of her name, whether she was a Gradenigio or a Contarini. The well-known story of young Steno's insult to this lady and to her old husband has found a place in all subsequent histories, but there is no trace of it in the unpublished documents of the state. The story goes that Michel Steno, one of those young and insubordinate gallants who are a danger to every aristocratic state, having been turned out of the presence of the Dogeressa for some unseemly freedom of behaviour, rode upon the chair of the Doge in boyish petulance and insulting taunt, such as might well rouse a high-tempered old man to fury. According to Sunudo, the young man, on being brought before the forty, confessed that he had thus avenged himself in a fit of passion, and regard having been had to his age and the heat of love which had been the cause of his original misdemeanour, a reason seldom taken into account by the tribunals of the state, he was condemned to prison for two months and afterward to be banished for a year from Venice. The Doge took this light punishment greatly amiss, considering it indeed as a further insult. Sibelico says not a word of Michel Steno or of this definite cause of offence and the Romanin quotes the contemporary records to show that though alcuni zovenelli fioli di gentilomini de Venetia are supposed to have affronted the Doge, no such story finds a place in any of them. But the old man, thus translated from active life and power, soon became bitterly sensible in his new position that he was senza parentardo, with few relations and flouted by the Giovanistri, the dissolute young gentlemen who swaggered about the broglio in their finery, strong in the support of fathers and uncles. But he found himself, at the same time, shelved in his new rank, powerless, and regarded as a nobody in the state where hitherto he had been a potent seigneur, mastered in every action by the secret tribunal and presiding nominally in councils where his opinion was of little consequence, is evident and a man so well acquainted and so long with all the proceedings of the state, who had seen consummated the shutting out of the people and since had watched through at election after election a gradual tightening of the bonds round the feet of the doge, would naturally have many thoughts when he found himself the wearer of that restricted and diminished crown. He could not be unconscious of how the stream was going, nor unaware of that gradual sapping of privilege and decreasing of power, which even in his own case had gone further than with his predecessor. Perhaps he had noted with an indignant mind the new limits of the promissione, a narrower charter than ever, when he was called upon to sign it. He had no mind, we may well believe, to retire thus from the administration of affairs, 
and when the Giovannastri, other people's boys, the scum of the gay world, flung their unsavoury jests in the face of the old man who had no son to come after him, the silly insult so lightly uttered, so little thought of, the natural scoff of youth at old age, stung him to the quick. Old Falieri's heart burned within him at his own injuries and those of his old comrades. How he was induced to head the conspiracy and put his crown, his life and honour on the cast, there is no further information. His fierce temper and the fact that he had no powerful house behind him to help to support his case probably made him reckless. In April 1355, six months after his arrival in Venice's Doge, the smouldering fire broke out. Two of the conspirators were seized with compunction on the eve of the catastrophe and betrayed the plot, one with a merciful motive to serve a patrician he loved, the other with perhaps less noble intentions, and without a blow struck, the conspiracy collapsed. There was no real heart in it, nothing to give it consistence. The hot passion of a few men insulted, the variable gaseous excitement of wronged commoners, and the ambition, if it was ambition, of one enraged and affronted old man, without an heir to follow him or anything that could make it worth his while to conquer. An enterprise more wild was never undertaken. It was the passionate stand of despair against force so overwhelming as to make mad the helpless, yet not submissive, victims. The Doge, who no doubt in former days had felt it to be a mere affair of the populace, a thing with which a noble ambassador and provveditore had nothing to do, a struggle beneath his notice, found himself at last, with fury and amazement, to be a fellow sufferer caught in the same toils. There seems no reason to believe that Falieri consciously staked the remnant of his life on the forlorn hope of overcoming that awful and pitiless power with any real hope of establishing his own supremacy. His aspect is rather that of a man betrayed by passion and wildly forgetful of all possibility in his fierce attempt to free himself and get the upper hand. One cannot but feel in that passion of helpless age and unfriendedness something of the terrible disappointment of one to whom the real situation of affairs had never been revealed before, who had come home triumphant to reign like the doges of old, and, only after the dutal cap was on his head and the palace of the state had become his home, found that the doge, like the unconsidered plebeian, had been reduced to bondage. His judgment and experience put aside in favour of the deliberations of a secret tribunal, and the very boys, when they were nobles, at liberty to jeer at his declining years. The lesser conspirators, all men of the humbler sort, Calandario, the architect who was then at work upon the palace, a number of seamen and other little-known persons, were hanged not like the greater criminals, beheaded between the columns, but strung up a horrible fringe along the side of the palazzo. The fate of Falieri himself is too generally known to demand description. Calmed by the tragic touch of fate, the doge bore all the humiliations of his doom with dignity and was beheaded at the head of the stairs where he had sworn the promissione 
on first assuming the office of Doge. What a contrast was this from that triumphant day when probably he felt that his reward had come to him after the long and faithful service of years. Death stills disappointment as well as rage and Falieri is said to have acknowledged the justice of his sentence. He had never made any attempt to justify or defend himself, but frankly and at once avowed his guilt and made no attempt to escape from its penalties. His body was conveyed privately to the church of Sant Giovanni and Sant Paolo, the great Zanipolo, with which all visitors to Venice are familiar and was buried in secrecy and silence in the atrio of a little chapel behind the great church, where no doubt for centuries the pavement was worn by many feet with little thought of those who lay below. Even from that refuge his bones have been driven forth. But his name remains in the corner of the hall of the great council, where, with a certain rheumatic affectation, the painter-historians have painted a black veil across the vacant place. This is the place of Marino Falieri, beheaded for his crimes, is all the record left of the Doge disgraced. Was it a crime? The question is one which it is difficult to discuss with any certainty. That Valieri desired to establish, as so many had done in other cities, an independent despotism in Venice, seems entirely unproved. It was the prevailing fear, the one suggestion which alarmed everybody and made sentiment unanimous. But one of the special points which are recorded by the chroniclers as working in him to madness was that he was senza perrantardo, without any backing of relationship or allies i.e. sunless, with no one to come after him. How little likely then was an old man to embark on such a desperate venture for self-aggrandizement merely. He had indeed a nephew who was involved in his fate, but apparently not so deeply as to expose him to the last penalty of the law. The incident altogether points more to a sudden outbreak of the rage and disappointment of an old public servant coming back from his weary labours for the state in triumph and satisfaction to what seemed the supreme reward and finding himself no more than a puppet in the hands of remorseless masters, subject to the scoffs of the younger generation, with his eyes opened by his own suffering perceiving for the first time what justice there was in the oft-repeated protest of the people, and how they and he alike were crushed under the iron heel of that oligarchy to which the power of the people and that of the prince were equally obnoxious. The chroniclers of his time were so much at a loss to find any reason for such an attempt on the part of a man non abiando al comproponquo that they agree in attributing it to diabolical inspiration. It was more probably that fury which springs from a sense of wrong, which the sight of the wrongs of others raised to frenzy, and that intolerable impatience of the impotent, which is more harsh in its hopelessness than the greatest hardihood. He could not but die for it, 
But there seems no more reason to characterise this impossible attempt as a deliberate treason than to give the same name to many alliances formed between prince and people in other regions, the king and commons of the early Stuarts, for example, against the intolerable exactions and cruelty of an aristocracy too powerful to be faced alone by either. End of section 17. Read by Julie Jackson, Staffordshire, England. 10th of May, 2021.